So the prophet Isaiah is having a little bit of a crisis in our first reading this morning, the one that Nicole just read for us. Maybe this is a situation that is a little bit familiar to you. It is certainly one that is a little bit familiar to me. Isaiah says, the Lord called me before I was born. This is like the beginning of his, like his little mini spiritual autobiography. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was still in my mother's womb, the Lord named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's that prophetic call coming out, right? Isaiah was presumably a kid with a mouth on him, and he grew up to be a man on a mission. He says, God made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of God's hand, God hid me away. God made me a polished arrow in the mighty prophetic quiver. And God said to me, you are my servant, Isaiah. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. All of that sounds great, right? Called at birth, clear marching orders. Here's what your life's going to be about. Go forth, speak truth to power. Go raise the hackles of the mighty. Go call for change. Go be a bad boy in the court of the king. I have given you as a light to the people of Judah, a sharp sword and a polished arrow in the quiver of God. Well, it doesn't always work out quite that well in practice. We know that from all of these ancient stories about prophetic leaders, women and men with a message from God who stand before kings and princes and suffer persecution and calamity and humiliation, sometimes violence and death. And that seems to be where Isaiah finds himself in this crisis. I have labored in vain, he says. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. That's the, that's the hard bit. I have set out to do a great work of power, right? To, to speak a word of truth to, to powerful people, to call all of the people back from their straying ways, back from their lust for violence and power, to call them to return once again to the God who created them, and it has not worked. This is his, his moment of crisis, right? What went wrong? I thought I was following God's call, and Look at how horribly it has turned out. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Maybe it was one big ego trip. Like maybe what I thought was the voice of God was really just the voice of my own ego. It was just my vanity at play. Another young prophet faced a kind of a similar situation a couple thousand years later. A young man, 27 years old, sitting at his kitchen table in Atlanta, Georgia one night. It was 1956. Martin Luther King Jr. was the rising star of the civil rights movement. He was a, beginning to be a, a quite renowned preacher, a leader who had taken a very public role in the Montgomery bus boycott, one of the first protests of the, of the civil rights movement that garnered a lot of national attention. And things had been going remarkably well for Dr. King up until this moment. He'd earned his PhD at the young age of 25. He had an influential pulpit in Atlanta, a beautiful wife, a brand new baby girl. If anybody in America could say, along with the prophet Isaiah, the Lord called me before I was born. In my mother's womb, he named me. Right? That was Martin Luther King Jr., named not only for his father, Martin Luther King Sr., but for this great German reformer, Martin Luther, and destined from an early age to be the sharp sword to pierce the hearts of many. But in January of 1956, he found himself at his kitchen table in the middle of the night, spilling out his soul to God in agony and in fear. He wrote later, up until that moment, I had never experienced the so-called crisis moment. He said, religion was just something I grew up in. But in this moment, his life was falling apart. 
Two days earlier, he had tendered his resignation as president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. His followers were floundering. They were questioning his leadership, asking whether this young kid who seemed to have everything handed to him on a silver platter really had the guts that was needed to lead the people forward. Maybe he's just daddy's boy, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's 27, you know, they must have thought. No wonder the movement's floundering. The press had just written triumphantly, there will be white rule in Montgomery as far as the eye can see. Are these not the facts of life? The bus boycott was seen to be a failure. So Martin Luther King tendered his resignation and he was driving back home to Atlanta from Montgomery. Two white police officers pulled him over, they arrested him, threw him in the back of their vehicle and began driving out into the middle of the midnight countryside. Martin Luther King was pretty sure he was gonna be lynched that night. Instead, the two officers threw him into a jail cell. It was his first night in jail, would not be his last. And released on bail early in the morning, King found his way back home. He snuck in the back door of the parsonage and with all of the tension and the stress of the, of the previous two days suddenly landing hard on him, he sat down with a cup of coffee and a crisis. His leadership was questioned, his life was being threatened, his young family was being put at risk. A couple weeks later, their house would be bombed. He began to wrestle hard with God, the God who had been, up until now, little more than a philosophical idea for him, the God whom he had studied about and read. He'd written a doctoral dissertation on German theologians, but, but God had never really been a reality for Martin Luther King Jr. until this moment, 27 years old, a moment of profound crisis. He wrote, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I still think I'm right. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe to be right. But Lord, I must confess, he wrote, I'm weak. I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage, and I am afraid. I can't let people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing courage, they're gonna to begin to get weak too. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers, I have nothing left, I have come to the point where I can no longer face it alone. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. And the voice that Martin Luther King Jr. heard in those dark morning hours before sunrise, he wrote about a few years later in his first published book, Stride Toward Freedom. He wrote, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, Martin Luther, stand up for justice. Martin Luther, stand up for truth. And then he writes, I heard the voice of Jesus promise never to leave me, never to leave me alone. He repeats it three times in the book. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me alone. Martin Luther King called this the first transcendent spiritual experience in his life. God says to Isaiah 3,000 years earlier in the midst of his own spiritual crisis, God says it is it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up just the tribes of Jacob, to restore only the tribes of Israel. You thought your mission was a local one? I am here to tell you your mission is an international one. God says, I will give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach 
to the ends of the earth. That's God's answer when the prophet finds herself or himself in the moment of crisis and doubt. It's not just encouragement, right? It's not just like the strength to get back on the horse and keep on going, right? God's response to doubt and to fear is actually to expand the mission, right? You think you're failing? You think your, your mission has sputtered out and died? The divine solution is this, expand your horizons, right? Think bigger, reach farther, dream bolder. The solution to doubt and fear is not doubling back down on what you thought you were here to do. It's this, it's this shift. It's a change, a crisis, a crux point. It is too light a thing, God says. It is too light a thing just to work in the little sandbox you thought was yours to muck around in. I am sending you to a way bigger sandbox. And Martin Luther King had a similar shift in his sense of mission, his sense of call, that dark January night at his kitchen table. He articulated it a couple years later when the Montgomery bus boycott ended in triumph. And he stood before all of the people who had spent years on this project. And he said, desegregation is a necessary, but only a partial step towards the ultimate goal to which, that we seek to realize. He said, basically, he said, it is, it is too light a thing. Desegregation, he says, will break down legal barriers, it will bring men together physically, but something must happen so as to touch the hearts and souls of men and women so that they will come together not because the law says it, but because it is natural and right for them to do so. In other words, he says, our ultimate goal is not just legal desegregation, our ultimate goal is integration, which is genuine intergroup and interpersonal living. There's this prayer that is attributed to the English navigator, Sir Francis Drake. I suspect Francis Drake did not actually write this prayer, but it belongs to him somehow. It's an appropriate prayer for a navigator and a sailor, a prophet of a different kind. It's a prayer that asks God to send a crisis. That's a weird thing to pray for, I think. But for anybody who studied the history of the prophets of old and the prophets of our, of our own age, we know that the moment of crisis is often the way that God works to disturb God's complacent people and spur them on to new heights, new depths, new visions, and new dreams. The prayer goes like this. Some of you know it. Disturb us, Lord. Disturb us when we are too pleased with ourselves. Disturb us when our dreams have come true because we dreamed too little. When we have arrived home, same, arrived home safely simply because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen too in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of a new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture onto wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push us into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. I don't know about you, I'm praying for a crisis. I think we live in a day of crisis. Our world is shifting and changing all around us. The assumptions of a previous generation no longer hold water. Our institutions are failing us. 
and our leaders will not take us where we want to go. Our nation has reached a moment of crisis. That's a hard reality. And there may be a dark kind of blessing there. It's a horrible blessing. But only in the moment of crisis does the God of theology and philosophy, God as an intellectual construct, the God of our traditions, God of our forebears, right? Only in the moment of crisis does the distant God we read about become God incarnate, God with us, God in our midst, God of the kitchen table and the anguished cup of coffee, God who promises and threatens never to leave us alone, right? You long, God, you long for God to be with you. This is the comfort and this is the threat. God will not leave you alone because God's not finished with us yet. And when we find ourselves brought to our knees in these moments of crisis, clutching a cup of coffee at a kitchen table, that's the moment when, if we're open to it, the voice of God promises not just to be with us, but to push back the horizons of our hopes and call us out into a deeper purpose. I mean, Americans are arguably more segregated in 2020 than we were in 1956. I mean, that's abundantly true on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. King said, desegregation of whatever kind, it might bring people together physically, but something's got to happen to touch the hearts and souls of human beings so that they come together, not because the law tells them to, but because it is natural and right for them to do so. He said that only happens through nonviolence, right? That, that deeper work to be, to be attained. It only comes as the aftermath of nonviolence because the aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. And reconciliation is the moment when the beloved community begins to be formed. That's spiritual work, right? You, you can't legislate brotherhood. King believed it was only through nonviolence that we get to that deeper goal of the, of the civil rights movement because the aftermath of nonviolence is this reconciliation and reconciliation is how the beloved community begins to be formed. And the beloved community is not just a political body, right? Although the politics matter. The beloved community is not just, a, not just a legislated body, although good legislation matters deeply. The beloved community is also not narrowly just the work of churches to accomplish, although I think the time has come for us to reclaim our place at that table. But this is not narrow parochial work to which we're called, right? The beloved community is a spiritual reality. It's another name for what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. Building the beloved community is the work of people who have pushed back the horizons of their hopes and who have not allowed their vision of a new heaven to dim, even as they work hard to build systems of justice here on earth. The beloved community begins to take root, actually, in these moments of crisis when we are brought to our knees in despair, deeply disturbed by the almighty power of one who promises never to leave us alone, never to abandon us, and also promises never to let us rest too long on our laurels, smug, satisfied, content. God never promises us contentment. God does promise to be with us. And so we push forward haltingly, imperfectly, full of doubt and fear, and yet hanging on, clinging to this radical vision that the prophets have been holding out before us for thousands of years. At the end of the service, we're going to sing a hymn. It's not the one that's in your bulletin. Linda will talk about that. We printed it wrong. We're going to sing a hymn that is sometimes known as like the African-American National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson wrote it almost 100 years ago. But I think it's a hymn for all of us, any of us, 
who are committed to doing this work or who maybe need an opportunity to recommit to it in a moment of some kind of crisis out of which might come something far more powerful than we would have planned towards. The last verse of that hymn, James Weldon Johnson's words go, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far on the way, thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray, lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shattered beneath thy hand, may we forever stand true to our God, true to our native land. Those are marching orders, friends. Let's take them up. <laughs>